Thank you for listening to the GSC Podcast. The following audio was recorded at the 2022 Gathered and Scattered Conference at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Detroit, Michigan. Kevin, let me begin by first saying it's, it's, it's fun to be on this side of the conversation because I have seen you oh, yeah. ask these questions to men uh-huh. over the years a number of times. And so it's, uh, it's fun to be on this side of the conversation. I know a, a number of people leading up to this conversation have said, John, you know Kevin really well, so you, you probably have lots of embarrassing stories. And I, I already told this to Kevin. I would share some embarrassing stories. The problem is, is that Kevin knows way more embarrassing things about me than I know about him. And so for the sake of my own self-preservation. I'm, I'm not going to say anything too controversial here. I, I will just say Kevin is one of the smartest guys. I know his, his IQ is up here. The only thing that goes farther than his IQ is his level of pickiness. There is nobody that is as picky for food as Kevin. So he eats like a kindergartner. So it's, it's the IQ of a college professor and also the, the taste buds of uh, my babies at home. So that, that's Kevin in a nutshell. Kevin, I know you really well. We've worked together for 13 years. Most of the people here probably know you a little bit through blogs or through reading. So we're going to start with just some rapid fire questions just so the audience can get to know you a little bit more. You're married to Trisha. Correct. You've been married for how many years? 20, 20 and a half years. 20 and a half years. Congratulations. Thank you. You have how many kids at home? We have six wonderful kids, nine total. Okay. No. We have nine kids. We have nine, nine kids, kids total. That's it. Everyone yes, right. always says we have so many wonderful kids. They're all wonderful. We have nine, nine, nine children. The oldest is 19. We dropped him off at college, boo-hoo, a few weeks ago. And the youngest is one and uh, is turning two at the end of this month. My wife said to me just this morning or yes, yesterday, she said, this, I just realized this is, because our youngest is going to turn two, this is the, almost the longest I have not been pregnant in 19 years. Wow. And we said, let's keep it that way. Okay, well, that was going to be my next question. When, when is baby 10 coming? But it sounds like... Not, not, not coming that we are uh, aware of or praying for... <laughs> The Lord moves in mysterious well, ways, though, so we'll you see. never know, brother. No, I, I mean, I, yeah, we love kids, obviously, and you just, it's, yeah, Trisha always has that, oh, I can't, she's given away her maternity clothes probably three or four yeah. times, and then, they, and then they come back, but my Your wife, wife still, with the baby is the most serene right. picture ever, and she just, she's built for it. My yeah. wife still looks young and as, as great as ever. I have all this gray hair, and when I'm with... When I drop my son off at college, it's like, oh man, look at you, are young parents, you're 40s. And when I'm with our one-year-old, it's <laughs> congratulations on your granddaughter. Looks, yeah, just, I've had that once. It's actually from someone in our church. Ooh, I think he was sick, he's not feeling well. <laughs> That's really funny. So nine kids, nine is a full baseball team. <clears throat> was, that, was that the goal, the, the de Young? Church League softball the, the, team? The baseball team, yeah, what, whatever, or four players on the basketball bench or shorthanded soccer or football or something. It, it just ended up, we knew we both wanted, 
we both came from with four kids in both of our families, and we both wanted a lot of kids. We didn't really know what a lot of kids meant. I think once we, we just we didn't think about it, and we had five, and then we're like, that's a lot of kids. And we'll, and then I think from six, seven, eight, and every one of those was like, we are really shouldn't have any more kids. And then. We and, did. And here you are. <laughs> and here you are. Just do something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And we know what you did. We so, did yeah. That's, that's excellent. Uh, Kevin, you have been in Charlotte, North Carolina for five years now. Yes. Most of your life has been lived in the great state of Michigan. True. What, what are, is this your first time preaching back in Michigan? Preaching back in Michigan. That's a good question. I don't know. Did... Yes, it is. Okay, I think. so the, five, the Kevin fan club is saying yes. Five years. Yeah, I don't think I've preached at another church or camp. Or once, once I left, they did not want me back. Yeah, that is not true. I can assure you of that. Well, welcome back. What, what are a few things you miss about living in Michigan? I miss lots of things. I love Michigan. Uh, I miss that there are lakes everywhere. Yes. You know, I had this argument with a friend in seminary who's from Minnesota, and I know they're the land of 10,000 lakes. I said, we also have 10,000 lakes in Michigan. And I had framed, you saw in my office, a Trivial Pursuit card, which U.S. state has more coastline than the entire U.S. Atlantic seaboard, Michigan. So yeah, I miss uh, just, it's a beautiful state. North Carolina is too. Uh, I miss, obviously, the people. I miss Meyer. I love <laughs> Meyer. Uh, I miss the summer days being longer, of course, then they're shorter also in the winter. You know, what you can't, you can love a new place, and I, I'm very thankful for where we are. You can never be from another place than the place that you're from. Right. And so, I was born in Chicago, but I spent almost all my life in Michigan. And so I was just preaching this Sunday night from Psalm 120, the first of the Psalm of Ascents, and it, I was talking about nostalgia. And I said, uh, I made sure to say, I, I, I'm, I'm happy here, I'm not, but I said, you know, some of you are from, a lot of you are from different places too. And, and I said, when I, when I cross the line from Ohio, no, from Ohio, and, and come up into Michigan, and you see the big blue, pure Michigan sign. I said, I think two things. One, the roads really have just gotten worse. Yes. <laughs> That's right. And two, uh, yeah, you feel like you're I, you know, home. just just home. You yeah, know, just because it's where where I'm from. Yeah, well, we're very glad to have you back. As you know, Kevin has a very busy schedule, and so he was actually supposed to come and preach. Two and a half years ago, for my installation, COVID set it all back, oh, yeah, and so this has all right. been postponed. So it's been many years in the making. So thank you for carving out time. You, you know how it is as, as a Michigander. You know we view the South as slow moving, and they drink sweet tea and sit on their porch and don't do a lot. What, what are some things about the South that we maybe get wrong up here in the North? <clears throat> I don't think I live in the South. Okay, I was going to ask you that question: Is Charlotte the South? I mean, the Myron, who's our assistant, he's from Louisiana. He, he still says that's yeah. Yankee land. <laughs> oh, it, yeah, it, it is for people who are in South Carolina. I think North Carolina is where the Yankees, you know. Because Charlotte is, obviously it is the South, and 
there's, you don't have to go very many miles and you're in rural, but you know, uh, rural North Carolina, they might root for different teams and have a little different accent, but it's not, if you've been to rural Michigan, it's, it's some similarities. And Charlotte has so many people. We, every time we have a new members class with lots and lots of people, it's New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan. More recently, it's a lot of people from California. So yes, there are people, Charlotteans, not charlatans, but Charlotteans who are there and from North Carolina. I feel like it was an easier transition than I thought, but maybe because right. there's so many transplants there. I think that upper sort of south has similarities to the, to the Midwest. That would be harder coming from New England or for, from some other places. So I think, um, you know, what are, what are misconceptions? I'll tell you, this just probably says more about my church, but when I came and did the candidating sermon there, of course the Charlotte Motor Speedway's there, I've never been. The NASCAR Hall of Fame's there, I've not been but the chairman of the search committee said, when you, I said, anything I should know about preaching? He said, no, just, you know, just preach, be yourself. He said, just don't use any NASCAR illustrations, which I think was his way of saying, if you think you're coming to this particular church to really connect with people with NASCAR illustrations, probably not. So, but I think people love NASCAR in, in Michigan. Yeah. So it's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's the good thing so is you probably didn't have different. any NASCAR illustrations knowing you. So I have if, never had any NASCAR yeah, illustrations. Yeah, so it was a safe request. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, two true or false questions. First, you, you studied John Witherspoon for your doctoral work at Leicester. True. Uh, second true or, false question, true or false question. John Witherspoon is the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. Also true. Okay. Third true or false question, Reese Witherspoon, notable actress from Legally Blonde. <laughs> Is she related to John Witherspoon? I don't think Witherspoon? so. I've heard that she claims to be, but the, the daughters of the American Revolution or something who are, are very fastidious about these sorts of things uh, do not find her claim to be yeah, credible. Okay. So there you go. And now you all know. You can, you can even tweet that. So, yes. Sorry, uh, Reese. Yeah, sorry, Reese Witherspoon, notable actress from Legally Blonde. Uh, here's a question. As, as Presbyterians, recognize not everybody here is Presbyterians, but there's a doctrine that we have the spiritual mission of the church, that our, our mission is what you just preached, to, to make disciples, it's spiritual work, it's gospel proclamation. And because of that, we don't baptize a lot of political positions in the name of Jesus. We don't want to bind the conscience. Was, was John Witherspoon, as a Presbyterian, was he right in signing the Declaration of Independence? How, how do you think through that? I think he was right. Uh, I'm glad we have a country. Yeah, yes. Uh, sorry, we, we sad for the, the loss of the queen, uh, but we don't have one. So, but your question about the spirituality of the church is immensely important and complicated. The doctrine of the spirituality of the church, just start with the, the why it has a bad name, yes. is for many people, if they've ever heard of it, and I don't presume that many people have, but if they have, they often associate it with 19th century Southern Presbyterians, if not defending slavery, then at least saying it's none of the church's business right. to talk about slavery. 
Uh, Alan Strange, who's a professor at Mid-America Seminary, has a very good book. It was his doctoral dissertation. He's writing a more user-friendly version for Crossway, but it was on Charles Hodge's view of the spirituality of the church, and he makes the point that that wasn't the only way, the Thornwell Dabney, that wasn't the only way to conceive of the spirituality of the church. And the spirituality of the church doesn't mean the church, well, I'll say this, it doesn't mean Christians never say anything, quote, political. I mean, everything in one sense is political and that we live in a polis and it's related to things. It's not even that the church can never say something that's controversial or speaks into current issues. It's to say that the church has certain things circumscribed in its power. It has the power that is PCA language. It's ministerial and declarative, meaning that the church speaks things. The church is is given the keys, not a sword. The church also should understand that it neither has the place nor the capacity, the capability to speak on certain things. So the denomination I came from before in the RCA, for which has many things I'm thankful for, but they tended to want to make, you know, very definite pronouncements about the exact number for minimum wage and the exact rules for how many uh, you know, rounds can be fired with your gun control legislation and we should embargo these countries. And I think besides whether the church should be doing these things, does the church have the expertise to be speaking right. on these things? So we're not talking about Christians being involved. We're talking about the church as the church making certain pronouncements that it is not given the authority to make, and so the church ought to take very seriously the power that it has been given, which is not the power to bind men's and women's consciences, except in matters that pertain to the scriptures. So, just to give an example, uh, and this is not original to me, but you can talk about straight line issues and jagged line issues. The Bible says abortion is a sin. The Bible says racism is a sin, straight line. You can be preaching through texts in the Bible and say those things. Uh, we, uh, we rejoiced when, when Roe was overturned. Now, at m- several times in the last five, 10 years, because I guess I'm somewhat public person, people have asked, would you sign this? So one of them was, would you sign this to support this kind of justice for the Supreme Court. Well, I have a view on what sort of justice should be on the Supreme Court, but as a minister of the gospel, while I have a very definite belief from scripture about, say, abortion, and I have prudential understandings of what I think a Supreme Court justice should do, I said, I'm not gonna sign that because as a minister of the gospel, that's not what I have authority to make a pronouncement on. Now, if I was a different kind of Christian, a different sort of sphere, maybe I I would have. People have come and said, would you sign this thing about climate change or sign this thing about about alleviating poverty? And and I've always said, I may have certain beliefs and I may even have some things that I think would be good on those issues, but if it's a jagged line, if it requires a prudential decision on which Christians can reasonably disagree, it doesn't mean we don't talk about it, but it means that I'm going to be very cautious, not about speaking about, I write about issues in politics 
all the time, but hopefully in a way that isn't making definitive pronouncements. And, and Witherspoon um, was careful on this. When he preached one of the most important sermons in the history of this country in May of 1776, leading up to, obviously, the Declaration of Independence, and he preached it at Princeton, and he said, you will all bear me witness, this is the first time I've brought politics into the pulpit. And right. it was a national fast day, so it was by tradition where you speak into sort of national issues. And so he did, and it's where he uh, came out. The first half of his sermon was just a good old-fashioned, come to Jesus, you're a sinner. It, what does it matter if you have religious and political freedom if you're not freed from sin? And then the second half was, but those are important, and here's why he was for independence. Excellent. Kevin, you're, you're, you're very accomplished. You teach, you preach, you write, you have nine kids. Just tell us, what, what does Kevin actually do for fun? I think most of us look at you and think, yeah, this guy has no fun. But, but I know you to actually be a fairly fun guy. Fairly, you have some hobbies. But what, what, what does Kevin DeYoung do for fun? <clears throat> I think I lead a much more normal life than people might think. I, I, I I get seven hours of sleep, eight would be nice, seven and a half is fine, six and a half is, I'm getting tired, seven is, but I usually do about that, so I'm not staying up all, all night. I exercise every day except for Sunday, so I'm not going to the Olympics or anything, but uh, I run, bike, swim, I like to do that. I am playing with my kids and rolling on the ground with them, and I make it to, I, I, I think I made it to as many track and cross-country meets over the last four years as any other parent on the team. I would put my record up there with almost anybody. So uh, obviously I love my kids and love to do that, and anytime I can get away with just my wife. I, I mean, almost any sports I will enjoy playing or watching. I almost never just get to sit down and just watch it, but uh, it's usually on in, in the background. We're cleaning up and putting the kids to bed and watching whatever season of sports it, it happens to be. So, you know, I don't, I don't binge watch any shows. I don't watch movies. Uh, I don't do much of that, any of that, but, you know, it's, I think you would see it's pretty normal. Normal life, yeah. If crazy and chaotic. Nine kids, it should be a little yeah. chaotic. Kevin, here, here's a, a big question. This last spring was the last Together for the Gospel Conference. I think for many of us here present, kind of signifies the end of an era, and hopefully a lot of the fruit kind of bears on the, the coming generations. I, I remember going to the first T4G, I don't know if you remember, you and I shared a room with Ben Faulkner. Yeah. We were in room 325, Council of Nicaea, so uh -huh, I remember the yeah. room number. So at the very beginning of the movement, you were, just like me, just an attender, reading John Piper books, sitting out in the audience, being blessed by it. And then by the end of it, you were one of the leaders in the movement, writing some of the more important books on the stage, preaching, teaching. Now that that era has come to an end, just give us some reflections on how you are personally blessed by it, what are your thoughts as a leader, why is it not lasting, where do we go from here? How, how would you bring together the whole young, restless, and reform last 15 years? There, <laughs> there's a lot in there. Um, so 
just personally, obviously, it's been, I mean, uh, something I never saw coming and was very blessed and to, to be a part of it. And I, yeah, I went to that. We, we, we might have shared a bed. I don't know. No, Kevin would never okay. share a bed with me. He, yeah. uh, <laughs> he's uh, very we, anti-touch. I'm very <laughs> much. It's a good yes. part of my Dutch upbringing. Yeah. There's actually stories where we would go to conferences and he would bring his own air mattress to sleep on the floor in the corner. So as not to share a bed with no, me. No, I, th- I, I think it was to have you sleep on your mattress. Uh, yeah, that was, certain, yes. uh, <laughs> certain senior pastor privileges. I was saying this, we just went on our pastor's retreat, and this is what sort of servant leader I am. When we go, and there's a whole bunch of us pastors, and you know, you go, and you know, some guys are going to get a bunk bed too short above the garage, <laughs> right, and someone's right. going to get a, a queen, king bed with a... My... My approach is always look for the, the second best room. <laughs> so you don't seem selfish. It's not like I'm not adding over the right, king bed. Right, wow, right. who are you are really <laughs> self, but the queen room and so I, I'm, not, I'm not looking to serve, but just to give the appearance of not being yes. entirely selfish. Very effective leadership. It's been yes. very effective. So, you know, I, I went in 2006, and if you would have, t- that was the first one, right? And if you, or was it eight? I don't remember. Whenever it was, if you would have told me a dream in life, I said, one dream, could I just have a meal with John Piper? Yeah. Just one dream. And if he had a second dream, maybe sometime before I die, could I publish a book? So uh, it, I, I, I did not have any plan for the doors that opened. It was, humanly speaking, one, one editor at Moody who published Why We're Not Emergent when Baker, Zondervan, Kriegel, everyone in Grand Rapids didn't do it, and uh, why, why should they? And one guy at Moody said, yeah, we like it, let's take a chance on it. And then Mark Dever and Ligon and those guys, and Al and CJ, liked the book, and so they gave it away at T4G, and, did a, and then people read it, and then, yeah, I didn't see what's coming. So I have been hugely blessed by all of those men, by that conference, by that whole Reformed resurgence, YRR, New Calvinism. I guess I, you say I've been a, a player in it, although I get all the jokes, the young Restless and Reform, aren't you D old now? But I'm, I said, yes, I am, <laughs> Kevin uh-huh. D old, I understand. So I, it's, it's served that whole constellation. I think we will look back and, and think the Lord was doing something. Revival is too strong a word probably, yeah. but maybe it's a good word because you look in history, revivals are always messy. There's always, you can look back and see, look at what God was doing, bringing all of these people together and these new things. and. Calvinism was supposedly, Time Magazine said, one of the, you know, the third thing changing the world and all of this stuff happening and all of these, you know, reconciliations and movements and all this burgeoning. And you say, that was, I genuinely think there was a work of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And as you know, church history and any sort of work like that, there's, uh, there's a lot of weeds that grow up and a lot of tares along with the wheat and so we're, we're seeing that there were certain things that didn't last and certain partnerships that didn't last. So there's, there, I have a lot of thoughts about why that happened, and that's probably not 
this occasion to do that, but I think the, you know, the, David served the Lord in his generation and then, then he died. And I think T4G served the Lord very well. Mark Dever, to his credit, was always very intentional that this is a conference. It's, it's, it's a conference for pastors, and when it's done, it's done. And Mark said for years, eh, we shouldn't do another one. And somebody would say, well, you had 13,000 people. You might want to do another one. Well, we shouldn't do another one. Yeah. And I think this was probably the right time to, to say that was really good. We serve the Lord and perhaps, you know, other things will pop up or other sorts of ministries or conferences or opportunities to say, let's keep doing the same things, but maybe address a different set of issues or try to address them in a in a new way, but I'm, I'm very thankful for what it did over those years. That's right. That's right. Kevin, this past week on, on Twitter, this is in reference to the gathered and scattered theme of our conference. On Twitter, uh, in reference to Jeremiah 29, you wrote, seeking the welfare of the city is not the mission of the church. A lot of us, especially city church people, I mean, seek the welfare of the city. That's why we moved downtown is that kind of verse. I won't read the rest of your tweet. What, right. what did you mean there? Seeking the welfare of the city is not the mission of the church. That, that's a Bible verse. Mm-hmm. God said it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, what, what, what were you going for there? Well, uh, that came out of a sermon, so you can go listen to it, that I preached two weeks ago from Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city. And I, I said, that verse has us settle down. The exiles are there, the false teachers are saying, you're only gonna be in Babylon for two years. Jeremiah is the true prophet, he says, nope, the word of the Lord said this is not gonna be short, so you better settle down. You better get married, you better have kids, you better seek the welfare of the city because in, that wealth, in its welfare will be your welfare. So I definitely said we seek the welfare of Charlotte. We want Charlotte to flourish. We want to be good neighbors. We, it, you know, Bank of America, tallest building in Charlotte, uh, and I know lots of people who, you know, who work there, and they do lots of bonkers stuff in the inside of that company, and they provide a lot of jobs. I'm not rooting for Bank of America to fail. I want it to do well. So yes, seek the welfare of the city. However, let's understand what that welfare of the city means. First of all, just on the face of the text, the, the reason God gave was, was rather pragmatic. It, it did not say seek the welfare of the city because in so doing, they will bring new treasures into the new heavens and the new earth. It said, if you want it to go well for you, you better hope it goes well for Babylon. If you're, only, if you're all anti-Babylon, it's not gonna be good for you. So I framed the sermon with Augustine's city of God. How do we live as the city of God in the midst of the city of man? And that means sometimes you have a posture of I'm against this wicked Babylon. Revelation is all about wicked Babylon. And at the same time, you want Babylon as the system to fall and crumble, but you live in Babylon. So you want there to be jobs and clean water and food in prosperity and shalom in Babylon. So I just looked at the motivation. And then the, the other thing is to realize in the context there of Jeremiah, to be for 
the shalom of the city is to understand the end. So I said, we need to settle down, but we need to understand the end of the story. And so Jeremiah wasn't just saying, settle down and work, renew this. He said, yeah, it's not gonna be two years, it's gonna be 70. And you know what's gonna happen in 70 years? It's all gonna be wiped out. God's mad at you, he's really mad at Babylon. But for now, he's using Babylon to punish you because you're covenant breakers. But in 70 years, he's gonna send somebody else and they're gonna wipe out Babylon. And so just my caution is sometimes when we get fired up about seek the city, good Bible verse, are we leaving out that part about, oh, and the city will be destroyed. And the only way to have true lasting shalom is to, to move from the city of man to the city of God. And then the reason why I said it's not the mission of the church is because what I said at the beginning of that last message, church and mission are, are, are unique categories yeah. such that God told his people, you're, you're here, make the best of it, be a good neighbor, settle down, you want things to go well here. He, he, he didn't say, Israel, here you are, go over to Babylon, hunker down, try to make Babylon Israel. No, how do you live as Israel in Babylon, knowing that Babylon's not going to become Israel, but you're Israel in Babylon, and you want it to go as well as it can for the sake of the Israel in Babylon? Yeah, it's very helpful. It, it, it seems to me that there's a good impulse Christians are reading their Bible, anytime they see a command, they think, I should do that command. How, how do you think, there, there's some place of scripture that I think we sort of just instinctively know. Paul says to Timothy, bring my books. I think we know, okay, I don't need to bring any books, the books to a guy are. Paul. I'm or, gonna go find Carpus yeah. at Troas. He's not gonna look good by now. <laughs> yeah, or there's yeah. a, he, Paul says Ephesians 5, there's commands for wives. I'm not a wife, I know I don't need right. to do that. But there are other areas that's more complicated. Some commands are for individual Christians, some are for the gathered church, some are for the scattered church, some are things are just things that only God can do that, that we're not able to do. You're very smart, but, but help average Christians. How do you think through what commands apply to which category of my life? To start with, we should realize just on the face of it, none of the Bible was first of all for us. Written for you. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Or for me. Yeah. Now, it's a good instinct to say, yes, obviously, the Bible is everything in my life. It's all I need for life in godliness. But I do think it wouldn't be a bad thing for some Christians to slow up and say, okay, hold on. Before I make that jump to say, this is my command right here, let me hear what this is saying. You have sort of you have Old Testament questions and you have New Testament questions. So the Old Testament questions get into uh, the, the threefold use of the law, which I think is biblical, about civil ceremonial and the moral law, which is uh, abiding, represented in the Ten Commandments. But even going to the New Testament, you have questions about how do we make an application? So, for example, since this is about mission of the church gathered and scattered, may shock you, I don't think the Great Commission is immediately the command for any one person in this building. Now, if you say, whoa, wait, my whole life is my whole campus ministry told me on the Great Commission, 
But think for a minute, you don't really think that because you didn't really go. Some of you did. We say, well, I went out, I left my house today and I went and, yeah, that's not what it meant. (laughs) The disciples were already getting out of their house every day. He was saying, go to some other people. And then it's also true, most of you don't baptize. If you're not a, a pastor and you're a Presbyterian and you are baptizing people, you're, you're not a Presbyterian. So <laughs> I know other traditions do it a different yeah, way. Yes, sir, yeah. So I think what we need to do, that doesn't mean, oh, great commission, it's all gone. It means Jesus was giving that first of all to a gathered group of apostles. He told them, wait in Jerusalem. You're gonna get the Holy Spirit. That's not, we don't all go to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do that. So that was a command for the apostles. Now, I'm not a full preterist, meaning everything there is already gone and been fulfilled. Jesus says, lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So the promise Jesus makes implies that the commission itself lasts as long as the promise, to the end of the age. But I would say the great commission is most immediately for the apostles, and now by extension is for that church which the apostles have founded. So I would say, though the Great Commission is not individually my specific command, every Christian ought to be doing something to see the Great Commission fulfilled. I think think the locus of Great Commission authority resides, well, in Jesus, but the execution of it resides in the church. It was in the apostles and now in the apostolic church to carry this out, which is why we don't all go, we don't all baptize, we are not all commissioned authoritative teachers, but every one of us has a part to play in seeing that people do go and do teach and do baptize, and the overarching command, as you probably know, is make disciples. Very helpful, very helpful, thank you. One last question, you know, we're talking about you know, we, we gather every Lord's Day for worship. That's where we're filled up. We meet with God, divine dialogue, new covenant renewal. And then we're scattered into the city to do good throughout the week. And then once you get to the scattering part, I think people can start to feel guilty because there's a million good things that everybody could do. And hopefully I'm allowed to say this, but I heard you have a new book coming out. True. Uh, and possibly, can I, am I allowed to share the title? Yeah, yeah, okay. that's fine. Justin Taylor's not going to sue me or something. No. Nope. Uh, Impossible Christianity. Why following Jesus does not mean you have to change the world, be an expert in everything, accept spiritual failure, and feel miserable pretty much all the time. That is my new book. I, well, I just finished it. It'll come out about a year from now. That's great. It's a short book. That's great. You're, you're what very, do you want to know about it? You're, you're good at short books. I feel like short that's, books. Yeah. That's, you know, you've written so many books. Yeah, they're booklets. <laughs> They're short. Just do something crazy busy. They're they're, they're really helpful. So it it seems to me that there's two possible ditches. The first ditch would be what Pastor John Piper would say is somebody that's just wasting their life. They go to church, they check off a box, they just want to go to heaven. They're not doing anything to help the Great Commission throughout the week. And my guess is if you're at this conference, you're the other type of person that feels a real burden. You don't want to waste (laughs) your life. You want to help the Great Commission. You want to do something in the city and you just feel overwhelmed with guilt all the time because you're never doing enough. Unpack your book for us. Tell us what is it about and how would you speak, especially to people at a conference in downtown Detroit on a Friday night that are wanting to serve the Lord as his scattered people throughout the week? We have made 
Christianity impossible when Jesus did not mean for it to be so. Now that sentence requires a lot of guardrails. I don't mean, well, Christianity is possible, we can work our way to heaven. No. I don't mean sin isn't a big deal. See, there are lots of books and blogs out there right now sensing something similar. There's lots of, you know, anxieties on the rise. People compare themselves on social media. Social media gives us access to global problems like we, we've never had before. We probably are not meant to be. We're not meant, the, we cannot, finite human hearts and brains cannot appropriate seven billion problems. But we have access to seven billion problems. So the book is not saying, let's dummy down Christianity, uh, just try your best, I'm okay, you're okay. And it's not even a book, first of all, about let's glory in our justification that God loves us even though we're spiritual failures. It's actually getting at that last part to say, when and how did we think that being a faithful Christian meant I must view myself as a spiritual failure? There's lots of that out there. Oh, we're just all failures and we just live with this, this guilt all the time and I'm not good at anything, but Jesus loves me. And so we, we get it. I'm gonna get to heaven, justification by faith. It's all of grace. But it feels like God will equip me and I'll get to heaven. But until I get there, he doesn't like me a lot and I'm not really doing a good job. And I need to be an expert and I try really hard, and I'm just, Christianity is for some people who are super gifted. So I start the book, I just talk about, I've always loved running, and I've never, my, you know, my dream, I didn't dream of hitting a home run in the bottom of the ninth, catching a, a, a touchdown in the Super Bowl. I dream of being the anchor leg in a four by 400 relay in the Olympics. And didn't happen, I was, if I work really, really hard, I can be, the worst of the pretty good. <laughs> uh, um, the worst of the pretty good. I ran one year at Hope College, so I am an NCAA athlete. Congratulations, <laughs> yes. yes. Flying Dutchman. Uh, flying Dutchman. I did a triathlon relay last year, and we got third place and won $100, so I am a professional triathlete. Wow. Thank you. Add that to the bio on uh, <clears throat> yes. TGC. But I always say I worked really hard. I did the high hurdles. I made the final of the conference meet. I got last place. D3 conference meet, last place. I work really hard. I can be the worst of the pretty good. And I think a lot of us feel that way as Christians. If I give it my all, I'm not super gifted, but I'll be, I'll be the worst of the halfway decent Christians, and God doesn't mean for us to feel that way. There are more than a dozen passages that speak of God being pleased with us. Well done, good and faithful servant. A lot of us act more like the servant who buried it in the ground. God, I know you're really uptight. I know you're really temperamental. Just, I'm gonna get to the end of my life. I didn't screw up. <laughs> I didn't screw up. And though I completely understand the the need for books that don't waste your life, radical. That There are lots of people, the seashells, the poor seashell collector. I mean, that guy just went <laughs> tanked. I, I, I saw my three-year-old with a pail of seashells and it was like, 
It was pot or something. What is he doing <laughs> carrying around seashells? What did I do wrong? So I, I, I totally, I, I love John, and I agree with your way, you can waste your life. No doubt the book that I wrote is Impossible Christianity is the book a 45-year-old writes, not a 25-year-old. And I say in there, I don't want the 25-year-olds to be discouraged. I don't want the 25-year-olds to think, I I want them to dream and think about changing the world. I want them to have ideals and ambition. What I am trying to say is if we think that there is some super spirituality in feeling like a failure, there's not, and in fact, you run the risk then of when you actually are sinning and need to be convicted that you don't feel that conviction. Yeah, yeah. You're meant to put your head on the pillow each night and feel like, Paul says, I have, I'm not aware of anything against me. Who, how can you say that? How can you say, I don't know of anything against me? Well, Paul doesn't mean he didn't sin that day. He meant, I repented. I brought it before the Lord. I go to bed at night with a clean conscience. And I think, last thing I'll say about it, because I know you didn't mean for the whole book, but I think as pastors, and I know there's pastors and church leaders here, we make this mistake sometimes because we want to preach in such a way that people are moved. And one of the ways we get people to move and to feel things is to make them feel that they're not doing something. Mm -hmm. And so I know how to preach a sermon on prayer so everybody feels like a failure. You're all gonna get to the end of your life and the last thought before you meet Jesus is gonna be, I should have prayed more. Well, that's no way to live or to make everyone feel like you have two cars, forget it. You could have got by with one car and somebody wouldn't go to hell, but you had to have two cars. I don't care if you're in Detroit. (laughs) Uh, You didn't evangelize enough. So we know how to preach so that everyone feels guilty for everything. I sometimes now will, will just pause and say, before I go any further, I want you to know, congregation, some of you are actually obedient in this area. Mm-hmm. The, Jesus said, Great Commission, teach people to obey all that I've commanded. So Jesus doesn't think obedience is a hypothetical category or something that we just second use of the law to feel bad. You actually, not perfectly, but truly can be obedient. And I don't think, especially maybe in Reformed churches, I don't think we have discipled people with an understanding that they can be obedient to God. And so it's not just the low-level failureism, it's then when you have to say, whoa, brother, sister, if you are in this sin, and you don't repent of it, you're not going to heaven. You're in danger of forfeiting the kingdom of heaven, 1 Corinthians 6.10. And people say, well, I mean, I live with sin all the time. Well, you've become accustomed to living with this low-level sense of guilt instead of dealing with it and understanding that Jesus actually thinks you can be a faithful, pleasing disciple. Remember a sermon you preached back at University Reformed Church, 1 Timothy chapter 3, about the qualifications for elders in the church. And you said, the expectation in this passage is that there are some men that will be qualified. Not, not perfectly, but it is possible to be a good faithful elder. And I remember being really blessed by, by that. Yeah, word. yeah. And I, I, I closed the book from 1 Timothy 2, pray for people in high positions of authority. 
that we may live a quiet and dignified life, godly, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, I know that's not the only verse in the Bible to pray for, but if somebody came up to you, or no, you said, how, how can I pray for you? And you said, would you just pray for me? My prayer request right now is that I could live a, a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There's a whole lot of places that would say, what are you, some sort of spiritual loser? What do you mean, quiet <laughs> life? What are you, a quitter? <laughs> right. Well, quiet doesn't mean quietism, but an active life doesn't have to be hyperactivity. I think we have no category for that verse that to, Paul says, I want the governing authorities to, to leave me alone. I'm not looking for persecution. I want to live a faithful Christian life. And when we think, I got to solve the, the most intractable problems. When are you going to solve racism? Well, n- never. I mean, it's, it's a sin. People sin. Let's preach against it. Let's work to bring races together. You will have it. I mean, somebody I saw in my own denomination, I'm getting way off, but just said, we should, I'm paraphrasing, we should not only be against abortion, but we should so work that the, the, the society so loves and cares for people that abortion would be unthinkable. Well, that's amazing, yes, but I'm reminded of someone who said, the poor you will always have with you. Yeah. And so if you're going, somebody once said, well, the culture is the report card of the church. What a silly thing to say. Yeah. Yes, the, the church. Diocletian persecution. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, the more churches you have, the more Christians you have, the more influence you ought to have. It's different in America with all of our history than it is under Diocletian's persecution. But we are not going to have a culture such that sin is unthinkable to people, such that sin would be absolutely just beyond belief. No one would ever choose sin. That, that's not possible. And when we set out that the only way to be faithful is you have to be such an expert in so many things and such an, an, an activist to change all, well, some certain people will be gifted and called and, you know, and, and do those things. But a whole lot of people are gonna live quiet, dignified, godly lives, and they're actually gonna do a whole lot more than people think because they got married, they stayed married, they raised their kids, they sent them out into the world, they showed forth, they volunteered for their church, they showed up. So if some people wanna lean against the person in the pew who's just not doing anything, showing up and lives for college football, I get it. But I'm also saying there's a lot of people in our churches who are, they're, they're tithing, they're volunteering, they're showing up for meetings, they're in their small group, they're trying to raise their kids, they're sacrificing to send them to Christian school, or they're trying to get involved in their public school, and those people need to be spurred on and cheered and loved and celebrated and not meant to feel like they're failing. That's right. There you go. It's a good word. I think that's probably where we will end tonight. We do not have that book uh, on our book table, but next, next year, year we'll have it on the book table. I don't know if Kevin will be here, but we'll have somebody else preaching, and we'll make sure to put that book down there and make sure you check it out. I think it's published by Crossway. Crossway. Yeah. Crossway. I think we'll break for the evening. Uh, just by way of reminder, the conference resumes tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. If you are a pastor or an elder, there is a breakfast with 
Kevin and Jason Halopoulos, another pastor that I used to work with at University Reformed Church. That breakfast will start at 7.30. It's down in the fellowship hall, right by the bookstore. It'll be time to have breakfast together, to pray. There'll also be a Q&A with, with Kevin and Jason, and that breakfast will start at 7.30. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. We hope and pray this content was encouraging for you. For more information about our annual conference, visit us online at RedeemerDetroit.com.